on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. So I think during the course of the last century or the one prior to that, the following took place over and over and over again, that the people who left entered into a kind of time out of time, did everything they could do to leave behind what they meant to leave behind with varying degrees of success, only to discover within a generation that being successful at doing that turned out to be no success at all turned out to be another kind of poverty that you'd never had when you were in the old country. At least you weren't culture-free when you're in the old country. But leaving behind those aspects of the culture that were no longer sustaining you, you turned into a culture-free person within a generation or two. Well, you see, our understanding of from whence we come, as fractured and fragmentary and, and perhaps nonsensical as it is, comes from a certain time that has nothing to do with now. Nothing to do with now. Welcome to the End of Tourism Podcast, Season 3, Invocations. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories of modern travel, of wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. They are deep dialogues for the dilemmas of our hypermobile times. Full disclosure, dear listeners, the pod relies on a gift economy model in which your donations ensure that this work continues. Without our current Patreon patrons, I simply wouldn't be able to offer this to you. Thank you to each of you who offer your gift to this project. There are some simple ways to support this work. You can do so through the End of Tourism's Patreon account at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. That's patreon.com slash theendoftourism. Any amount really goes a long way. I've also just launched my new Substack page or newsletter in which you'll receive monthly updates and be able to read all of my archived and new writing on the themes of food, psychedelics, exile, hospitality, and identity, always taking to task the subliminal, mythic, and psychic undercurrents of the culture. Substack will also soon host all of these podcast episodes, so you'll be able to find everything in one place. You can sign up for free today or on a subscription-level basis at chrischristu.substack.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U dot substack.com. Next, stumbling across the podcast is often made possible only by those rating-based algorithms, typically yoked to listener reviews. So... Please take a moment, it shouldn't take longer than that, to rate or review the pod on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, whether it be Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. It's really deeply appreciated, and that little gesture goes a long way. Finally, if there are other creative ways you'd like to assist, please feel free to get in touch. Thank you. On this episode, I'm honored to host and welcome back to the pod my dear friend, Stephen Jenkinson. M-T-S-M-S-W. Stephen is a worker, author, storyteller, musician, and culture activist. In 2010, he founded Orphan Wisdom, a house for learning skills of deep living and making human culture that are mandatory in endangered and endangering times. It is a redemptive project that comes from where he comes from. It is rooted in knowing history, being claimed by ancestry, working for a time, he won't live to see. When not on the road, 
Stephen makes books, succumbs to interviews, tends to labors on a small farm, mends broken handles and fences, and bends towards lifeways dictated by the seasons of the boreal borderlands. In this episode, we discuss wintering and going without, the ominous old country, being more European than the Europeans, what it means to love a place, the axis of the world and the local numinous, the towering order of staying home. In the second half of the episode, I propose a different route than we usually take, towards the living and the dead and time, towards justice and freedom. I have to say, Stephen was incredibly generous with his time, and we're deeply blessed to hear from him once more. Enjoy. Welcome back to the End of Tourism podcast, Stephen. Thank you so much. It's been a long and to some degree illustrious time, perhaps more for you than for me. I think you've hit the big time. That's what I hear. I don't know about that, but it's quite something seeing how the extent of these conversations can reach to every little nook and cranny of the world. That's great. Well, you know, you undertake and sometimes you're taken under. Yeah, the Carabasas, right? That's right. Very good. Yes, your native tongue coming out of you now. <laughs> yeah, well, just starting. We asked me how I was doing, and I, not that anybody needs to know how I'm doing or or me, for that, but since you were kind enough to ask, you know, the arbitrariness of January the 1st, what are we, the third today, right? So, mm. so we know that it, for example, those of us who are born to the Boreal forest and so on, as you were, as I was. We take our cue from this time of year, almost no matter where we are in a way. Mm. And you can feel inside some kind of seasonal speed bump, if you will. Like, for example, here where I live, even though I look bleached and distinctly Caucasian, we haven't seen the sun for 14 days, maybe. I mean, not an iota. We have this inflected light here but i mean it's all indirect and gray beyond describing so hence the activity behind me to remind me that there are such a thing as colors in the world you know my uh, my solar panels are aching for some kind of activity so all of these things conspire to drive you to a certain degree inwards which means that the people you know from the north should be more heavily represented in the the author and poet and so on brigade, then perhaps they are per capita, you know, because we have so much to contend with for so long, but maybe our contending is not that popular, you know, in the greater sphere. So that could be true for me too, that my, uh, my willingness to contend with the time of year. Well, I'll give you a, for example, just before Christmas, I was in Malibu for about a week, I guess, at the tail end of a tour that had begun in the middle of August. So I basically hadn't been home between August and a week or five days for Christmas. And the thing ended in Malibu, which is a strange place to end anything, I have to tell you. And I was staying in a tiny house. Man, it really lived up to its name too. And just outside the door was a recording studio. And this recording studio had survived the recent fires that you may remember, maybe three years ago or four now, something like this. Yet the house right beside it had disappeared in the flames. So I was living in the aftermath, the afterglow of those fires mm. from years ago. And the owner of the studio invited me anytime I wanted to go down and record. 
to do so. Well, I don't know anything about this stuff, but I knew it was good. I mean, I could tell by the architecture, the place was really kitted out, as they say in England. Long story short, I went in there on the very last morning I was there before they drove me to the airport. And I took out a piece that I never thought would see the light of day. There was a meditation on my, uh, my sojourn in San Quentin prison, where I was invited by a, a kind of program director of sorts to do, quote, whatever I wanted, which was not my idea in the first place. So, But anyway, it was a rumination I had completely forgotten about. And so I worked it up the night before, knowing I was likely to go in the studio and stood and delivered one time, one take only in front of the microphone. I've heard it since we've been back. And if I may say, could be a hit. <laughs> could be a hit. My time in San Quentin. And as I say, what posture are you supposed to take? Or what posture is available to you in a room full of posture kings? Mm. That's who they were, of course, because that's all they had is their posture and their outfit. Basically, that's it. And uh, I mean, I'm not in any way lionizing the circumstance, but I'll tell you this. Those of us who have many more lifestyle options would do very well to lose most of them and to find ourselves so terrifically reduced that you can finally take seriously the unlikelihood of being alive and translate that into how you go about your day, which remains extraordinarily difficult for people who have stuff and who have possibilities and so on to do. So how am I doing? Well, I'm in all that stuff again, but the winter version of it. And normally you and I see each other this time of year in the flesh over Victoria, whatever it is, and uh, looks like not this time. So I really, I miss that and seeing you makes me miss it a little more acutely than I might otherwise have done. I could have bumbled along as if, as if the South doesn't really exist, but now you're looking at me and we're doing this again, X number of years down the road. And though I am a pulmonary refugee, I don't seem to be obeying my disease this time. So I'm making do, you see, at the end of a year that had too much extraordinary in it, actually. And was capped off by a remarkable return to the firing line, if you will, to the stand and deliver brigades, the time before an audience, which I never knew if that ever would ever come again. And although the crowds were smaller, the longing after what I'm doing was larger, to the point where in the book signing lines afterwards, people said things to me I've never heard in my lifetime, along the lines of, there's the first disarming thing. I think to myself, I don't believe I've been doing anything for years to warrant such a declaration. I don't really have a sense of that myself in that way at all. And then they would say things like, my life was inconceivable without your presence in it. You know, things like this are, I mean, maybe I've lived long enough. Mm. Maybe I haven't blinked. I don't know what the real reasons are for it. But to have lived long enough to hear about it doesn't put me on the back benches of relief, to be honest. It kind of has the reverse consequence. Like the stakes are ever higher as a consequence of people finding what I've been doing consequential for them. And my sense of the obligation to proceed accordingly 
in the rest of my allotment is very intense, you know. And finally then, so we did the Knights of Grief and Mystery on and off for four months. I saw you on the road in Oxford, as you remember. And we were intending to do this, but I was too played out by then. Or not played out enough, whatever it was. And the opportunity to do that and to see the shape-shifting consequence of that undertaking, the genre-defying aspect, yes, but something else has begun to happen. You know, I said way back when in an interview about this thing that I had a sense of where the monsters were and that we were headed there as a consequence of what we were doing. I think that's very true now. In both cases, I do have a sense of where the monsters, not all of them. Nobody should know where all the monsters are, but I have a sense of a few now. And I've gone there. And it isn't fun, but it's, it's a noble pursuit. And if you can keep your nerve and remember what's been entrusted to you, maybe I can contribute to those people who are lining up to say something to me in the book signing line. I can give them a little bit more reason than they'd otherwise settle for. So, lucky me. How about you? It reminds me, you know, having these, I say, sobering conversations with friends here and as well in the context of the Orphan Wisdom School about the wake of consequence and any kind of considerable consequence that we have on the world, the results of which we probably will never see in our lifetimes, right? And to hear you speak of this, to be able to live long enough to see that, to see that happen is a blessing and probably pretty rare, I imagine, given the circumstances. Yeah. And it probably speaks to what you've put yourself to and how you've put yourself to it over the years. No? Timing is good, you know. If, if you can pull off timing, you can do almost anything else, it seems to me. I've often referred to timing as God's middle name. Sometimes it looks like God's middle finger, but it's usually God's middle name. Mm, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I've remembered that quite a bit over the last few years. And I think the middle finger stood long enough that I could finally start to braille the middle name a little bit. So that's, okay. that's what's been coming upon my days, I think. It's little blessings here and there, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so, the scale of the blessing that we can take. The small mm, blessings are are all we can manage really. The large blessing, they're there for the pros, man. Yeah. Yeah. And a friend of ours the other day, we were talking about blessings, a mutual friend of ours. And he said he said, Oh yeah, the blessings and the curses, you know, one and the same most of the time. So Maybe the big ones are the ones we don't have the chassis, as you might say, to uh, to be able to gather in in a good way. Yeah. I have a piece in the, in the show. It's been a while since I did it now. But as I remember, it's a piece called Still that I did for a film. Most of it didn't get used in a film. It turned into a, a wonderful piece for the show, I think. It's a meditation literally on stillness, but there's other things that come in as a way of trying to contend with why stillness is so hard to pull off. Mm. And somewhere in there, I say, you play for clarity and you get it and it's too much. And so you pray for mercy instead and you get it and it's not enough. And so you pray for clarity instead and you get it and man is too much. So you pray for mercy instead and you get it. 
It is never enough. And you pray. And the voice trails off there in that kind of strange impossibility that humans find themselves in. If they have the good sense to pray, but they don't have the good sense of what they're praying for. Mm. And so, you know, the notion that if you get clarity, that all shall be well, this is, this is madness. You know, it is. There's a reason that people don't spend a long time in the basement of their lives, in the foundation parts, you know, in the oldest parts. There's reasons for that. And those are to be credited, not necessarily obeyed, but certainly credited. And the people who are lining up to trade their hard-earned money for a weekend in the country so that they can see themselves. And banking on the idea that seeing more of yourself is bound to just cash out. I mean, there's a reason you haven't up until now. And the reasons are not all delusion. So, so with that caveat in mind, what shall we talk about? Mm. Well, I, I haven't written this down, this, this particular question. I don't know if it's a question as much as a continuation of what you were just mentioning, but uh, then this notion of the basement of our lives and, you know, not to use the, the term in a negative manner, but I've been thinking a lot about, you know, where I live at this time and a lot of people arriving from the north and most people trying to get as far away from the winter as possible and wondering about winter as a kind of basement underworld of the seasons and that there's that same kind of not inability but perhaps for lack of exercise for lack of exposure to exposure, yeah to the winter and, and not just to the cold, but, you know, outside of urban environments and to what that might hold and teach us in the ways that, you know, perhaps boreal people ancestrally and uh, perhaps even still today understood on a deeper level. It was something that I wrote in the manuscript of the book, which was that uh, generally snowbirds, as they referred to, those who escape the cold for the sun in the winter, that when they finally arrive in in the tropical sunny environment or semi-tropical that they never end up apprenticing that which they go in search of which is that weather which is that hot weather right they don't, they don't actually apprentice it they, there's no actual kind of study it's just okay we're out of the other one right right so the last time we saw each other was in oxford and I had the great good honor of being able to attend Nights of Grief and Mystery there. And I hadn't seen the show since 2016, I believe. That was a great, great honor to be there and, and to be an audience member, but also to kind of look around and watch the reactions and responses of the people and noting that even at 37, I was probably one of the youngest people there, if not the youngest. And just allowing, you know, the music and the words to give way to whatever might arise in me. And it was a wonderfully weepy night, if I can say so. And, you know, I think anyone out there who, who hasn't experienced uh, the Nights of Grief and Mystery really deserves to. And in the meantime, I've had the great pleasure of reading and finishing your new book, co-authored by Kimberly Ann Johnson, Reckoning. And I just wanted to ask you, the last time we, we spoke in this way over an interview, you had just released your previous book. And 
I'm wondering about reckoning and I'm wondering about how it came to be. If you could offer a bit of our listeners a little insight into what compelled you to bring something like this into the world again. Well, very simply, the biography of the story is uh, I got a note from somebody I didn't know, kind of indicating that she felt herself to be in harm's way in some fashion, just given the torments of the times. It says deep into the midst of the, the social carnage, which the pandemic became. And could she talk to me and could she do so with an audience? Okay. I didn't know what that meant, you know, but let's see. So I didn't have my glasses on like today. And I've become a little detail bereft, visually speaking. So I couldn't really see her. I mean, I I could make out her general form. But it turns out for the entire 90 minutes that we spoke, she was weeping virtually the whole time. Silently, I don't mean she was sobbing, you know, but I'm sure to people who are watching, they wondered about my sensitivity, given the fact that I never acknowledged the state of disrepair that she was in. Mm. But she did it very well, by which I, I don't mean she hid it. I mean, she was able to make room for that and proceed, not as if this is a piece of wreckage that had no business in real life. So I took my cue from her and I just proceeded. And it was recorded. And at the end of the day, that the same day, we got a thank you note from her, you know, for the time and so on. But then reported this sense of personal adriftness or worse, deep, deep undoing. And I guess thank me for that too, in some fashion. And I wrote back to her almost immediately. And I said, look, let's do this again. Let's do it tomorrow. There may not be any of the audience, doesn't matter. Let's do this, given this, this is what we'll do it about. Whatever this means, whatever's happening now. For, as I I said, okay, moves into the spare bedroom. As okay as want to do, you know. And so she agreed. And so we did it, got on the horse again, literally the next day. And those two things became for her listenership, I guess that's the word you would use, the most regarded, the most sought after and responded to things that she'd ever done on the internet. And she let me know this and then doubled down yet one more time and asked if we could do a series of five Sunday mornings about the five things that I'd done publishing-wise, including the Knights of Grief and Mystery and so on. Okay. They weren't really interviews, not really, nor were they anything like a balanced, if you just count airtime on the clock, they weren't balanced, but they were an opportunity to be concerned in real time, aloud bearing in mind the difference between us generationally and gender-wise and all the rest. And as I put it to her, so here we are, an older man, not yet old, and a younger woman, no longer young, which seemed, I mean, besides being accurate in every way, there's something very evocative about that arrangement. And given the shrapnel 
that passes for confetti that's passed between the generations now and between the genders. I actually welcome the opportunity to talk with somebody who didn't feel that they had to either defend themselves against me or debate me. And given the carnage in the public sphere, you wonder what else is left if you eliminate those two possibilities. And the answer is, well, mystery is left. An opportunity to engage each other and more importantly, the subject of the moment with a sense of goodwill that's not subterfuge, that's the real article. And a sense that this won't last. And a sense that one of us is going to be gone considerably before the other. Things like this. So I said, sure. By this time, I had a little bit of a sense of her. And I thought, I think there's something noble could ensue. I distinctly remember thinking that this would not be the standard being poked at with a stick from afar experience, you know? I don't mind those things, but there's limited consequence for them. So we did it anyway. And I knew, I think after the second one, that there was something of substance that would survive the transcription process. These were all transcribed and she sent them to me. And, you know, I'd never listened to myself after the fact, but I was listening to myself, if you will, by reading what I had said. And by eliminating all the ums and the so on like this, there was something there that was actually beyond readable. It was somehow composed. And the moment was very tangible. So I suspected there was something there. And uh, anyway, so over the course of late spring of this year just passed and into the early summer, we worked on doing something that was modifying the transcript enough to make it genuinely something that you'd want to read. And at the same time, being faithful to the lightning in a bottle sensibility that was there. And then we agreed, oh, this is a book by now. And I said, you write the intro because this was your idea. And then at the end, we'll write a letter to each other. And we'll date it. I don't know if it was the same day, but we said, but no back and forth. That's it. We already did the back and forth. Just one time, a letter to each other. Not really about something else. And so she wrote something that was three pages and I wrote something that was 30. And... <laughs> We sent it at the same time, so there was no modification. And I referred to these two things at the end as blessings. But you remember from our time in the school, blessing doesn't mean approval. Blessing doesn't mean namani pari spiriti santi amen. It doesn't mean that. The word blessing comes from bloodying. And it means the letting of blood for the off chance that something redemptive can accompany the desanguination. And I think that's what happened. So I was, it was easy for me to get behind it. It's been a whole other event, though, since then, that we've, we've appeared together on behalf of the book, might say, or an account of the book, or with the book to blame. Hmm. And we've done maybe seven or eight nights, I guess, kind of all over the continent. And something else happens there. You know, I'm not in the audience, so I'm not the most reliable of the thing. I can tell you this, there's a consequence 
that's a real-time consequence of the two of us being there and standing and deliver, delivering with utterly no preparation, with no sense of what the other person is going to ask. So there's no setups, there's no softballs, there's no, it's a very unusual something that's agreed to come because we've agreed to stay there. So that's how it happened. And that's what's happening with it now. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's an incredible, incredible text. And I'll make sure that the link for the Orphan Wisdom page is online so there our listeners can buy it. And as well, the events that you two have coming up in the new year as well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So returning to, to Oxford momentarily, that was the beginning of a long trip for me. And in fact, the first trip that I had done like that in the better part of a decade, maybe eight or nine years. And uh, it was the first time I was heading to certain places, specifically in Europe and the UK, to lay offerings for my dead. And throughout the trip, I had come to this question of the old country, that term that constantly came up in my childhood. And, you know, it was growing up in Toronto, sitting around family dinner tables around Christmas and Easter, Thanksgiving, etc., the same stories of the old country were told over and over and over again. My father and my uncle who had left when they were, I think, eight and 10 respectively from the old country to Canada. And my grandfather and my grandmother and the aunts and uncles as well, telling these stories of the sheep and the chickens and the pigs and the trouble, you know, but the trouble that children make, not the real trouble that actually befell them as a way of needing to leave that place. And so actually the last trip that I made some eight or nine years ago was to the old country for the first time. And I had all these ideas going in. I was going to arrive on a Sunday afternoon around 11 or noon and everyone would be flowing out of the churches and, you know, the smell of my grandparents cooking would be wafting from all the homes and everyone would be in their Sunday best and with their local sense of hospitality. And I arrived via taxi, and there were three churches, if you can believe this, in a small village. But the thing is, is that none of them were open. There were no services. And in fact, the majority of the buildings, I'd say probably the vast majority, there wasn't that many, it's a small village, but the vast majority of the buildings in the village were abandoned and boarded up. And so, you know, it was a very short trip. I didn't have much time to spend there, just, uh, you know, more or less a, a day or two with the last remaining grandmother or, or Baba of the family there. And uh, she didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Greek or Macedonian. So it was mostly just uh, sharing photos. And uh, so that was a bit of a wake up call, kind of decontextualized, right? Still without having any idea of the history and the persecution and all those things. And so, over the last eight years, I've had a great amount of time to, to consider it and to reflect upon it, to know a little bit more about the histories. And so there's this notion as well about going to these places and remember remembering them as the old country. But for the people that still live there, these few elders and farmers, there's not really any old country about it in the sense that I consider it to be, or in the sense that many... You know, North Americans, for example, consider Europe the old country to be. Yeah. And so 
I guess my question for you is, what do you think the consequences of ancestral immigration, specifically in the form of exile, have on our contemporary understandings of time? What might having the lived memory or even just the rumor of the lived memory of the old country do to our understandings of time? Well, let's start with wondering, taking the same question and inflecting it just a bit to wonder what us having an understanding of the old country does to the old country. And let's imagine that all the consequences just don't flow one way. Just as it's important to remember that when you invoke ancestry, it's really important to bear in mind that all the consequences and all the influences and all the darings do and there but for the grace of God go I kind of stuff, it goes in more than one direction. And it doesn't stay within the lines, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. So you could see it, maybe. What you having an old country to return to, never having been there. Is that true? You'd never been there before, just as an infant or what? No, no, not before the trip eight years ago. Okay, right. So, So can you imagine what being looked at like that might do to you? Are you a museum piece? Are you a relic? Are you something that was but no longer is? Are you somebody's frozen in time memory? Are you a sepia photograph sitting there in your living room, in your wicker chair? What do you owe the person who claims, who declares that they've come to? seek you out and whatever the reasons that you may have given and given the difficulties with the language. I mean, you're relying upon an enormous amount of goodwill and not having to stick handle, to use a good Canadian term, the ins and outs of trying to be subtly understood. So you have to traffic in, in bold type all the time. You know what I mean? Italics don't quite work and punctuation is no longer there. And you understand what I mean? So so as awkward as it might be for the returning one who's who's not really returning at all, has no plan to stay, has no plan to do the investing that you were describing earlier, is there as if this might be the last time. There's another one. What would this be like for the person being looked at as if they'll never be seen again? You know, the old adage about feeling that God is was once here now no longer raises the question of who left, who moved, mm. who wandered off the path, if you will. And much more often than not, the feeling is that somehow the deity has absconded, when in actual fact, if the story is told very well, it's very questionable who is gone without really realizing it, and whether or not God is still on the path waiting more or less patiently for you to come to your senses. <laughs> and is that what it's like to be looked at that way? Who knows? But anyway, so we have a lot of consequence that we deliver into the world through this, secondarily through the gesture and the timing of your leaning in and leaning out and, you know, and not knowing the ways. Because 
in your circumstance, you'd be terribly confused between your own childhood, which is very particular, and employing your childhood as the only glossary or vernacular dictionary available to you to make sense of what you're doing sitting in this person's house in this dilapidated X village, mm. right? Which, as you know, from the session we had in the school in the summertime and the books we were lucky enough to look at, that this is village life, much more often than not in Europe, in the Europe of, I was going to say Brexit, but that's too particular, of the EU and all the rest and the standardization of the commodities and food production and all the rest. So, okay, so there's one consideration that wasn't really forefront in the question, but I think really deserves to be there. Mm. And then you may remember me telling the story. So it was in the school, and I'm going to guess it was about five or six years ago now. There was a woman from Italy, a late middle-aged woman there, and I don't remember how it began, but I could feel in something that she was saying to me in the class that she was making a fairly, what turns out to be a fairly standard claim that grounded Europeans will make apropos of we in the so-called new world, that they have a degree of gravitas and belongingness and, and chops, cultural chops and all the rest. They make us look basically like tourists, even when we're here. And it was drifting through what she was saying, you know? And so I took a little bit of offense, but mostly I took notice of the fact that she felt it was fairly important to articulate this tired old, you know, party line again, that Europeans got the culture and we got the money, if you will. Mm. It's not even clear we got the money anymore, but, and hence we go there. And I said to her, came right off the top of my head. I said to her, you know, we're more actually more European than you. And she just looked at me like, this just makes so little sense that, you know, you're out of your mind. And I elaborated as follows. So I think in real time, during the course of the last century or the one prior to that, for sure, the following took place over and over and over again. That the people who left entered into a kind of time out of time, did everything they could do to leave behind what they meant to leave behind with varying degrees of success only to discover within a generation that being successful at doing that turned out to be no success at all, turned out to be another kind of poverty that you'd never had when you were in the old country. At least you weren't culture-free when you're in the old country, but leaving behind those aspects of the culture that were no longer sustaining you, you turned into a culture-free person within a generation or two. So this is in the background of what I was saying to her. So I said, we're more European than you. How does this work? Well, you see, our understanding of from whence we come, as fractured and fragmentary and, and perhaps nonsensical as it is, comes from a certain time that has nothing to do with now. Nothing to do with now. When you stayed in Europe, I said to her, your Europe changed, didn't it? Quite a bit, didn't it? It modernized to the point where your Europe was probably unrecognizable to you if you could bear to remember the old one. The one that was not even pre-industrial, I just mean pre-computer for God's sake. How's that? Hmm. 
So you accommodated and your understanding of what it meant to be European, in her case, Italian, European, accommodated all these changes and became a kind of sorrier understanding of itself that's living inside the bravado. We, on the other hand, had no such experience. So the North Star of our cultural longing is 18th century. I'm not saying it's accurate, historically accurate, but I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying this reflex instinct that we have about not quite being from here, which is, of course, historically accurate. We're not from here and we're still not from here these many generations later. But our pole star is that old, whereas that woman in that class that day, her pole star is as old as she is, maybe, and not really much older mm. than that. And the Parthenon, she looks at, or the Colosseum, she looks at through the viewfinder of the tourists who flock to the place and drive the locals away, mm. right? So, and I'm reminded of when I was in Ireland not so long ago, teaching there, at the end of the day, I'm checking out of the hotel and a woman's in her late twenties who's checking me out. And for a moment, there's just the two of us in the foyer as she's doing the paperwork. So I'm making small talk and I said, so awfully busy here. Oh my God, she says, the place is thick is how she put it. I said, yeah, she said, yanks mostly. I said, yeah, I've noticed that too. Any idea why? She said, oh, I know why, she said. And then all of her education to service the tourist sector fell away like that. And she said, oh, I know why. She said, they're looking for it. We have it. Mm. Wow. But I, I wonder when you say it that vehemently, I wonder if it's still enduringly true. I wonder, for example, if you can still have it under the sway of people from away seeking after it, if that doesn't actually do something to what you claim to be having, that having minus safeguarding may not result in having at all, that having minus the care and feeding of the thing that you claim to have inevitably, unerringly results in it's there every time you go to it. Maybe, maybe like any garden, like any growing thing, maybe, maybe not. So this is a very elaborate and long answer to what you've asked, but maybe the thrust will be something like this. Through the strange nostalgia of our gaze, the old country might have a hard time recognizing itself and a hard time surviving our yearning after it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we do that. I'm quite sure we do that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Or it turns into a tourist attraction. Something like that. This is why so many times I've said, you really love this place you claim to love? Yeah. Don't go there. Because in the wrinkles of your love is a disfigurement you don't intend. 
because it's not really love. It's a wish that your life was otherwise and an absolute certainty that the otherwiseness is alive there in a more tropical climate or a more architecturally favorable circumstance, whatever it is. And that that place can survive you insisting that it's there for your betterment, for your deepening, right? For your reacquisition of home. But that's not why it's there, of course. And I'm, it's not clear at all that it can survive the expectations that you bring to it. Oh, man, maybe it's like this. This is going to sound like maybe out of left field, but I just remembered this. So I was about 14, which is a terrible age to be. <laughs> just is. <laughs> but I was 14 or maybe 15 at the most. I was hormonal, but with none of the upside. Let's just picture it that way. And these two girls appeared at my house about a year older than me, which is to say, oh, several generations older than me, given the age we're talking about. Because they were hormonal in spades, weren't they? Yes. And leaving me just to gawk. <laughs> but anyway, it turns out I, we knew each other from when we were you know, maybe 10 years prior or whatever it was or six years prior. And they let it be known that they found out that I was living in the neighborhood. And they wanted to come and see what kind of a boyfriend possibility I might be. And wow. we're distinctly, distinctly let down to realize on first visual contact that I was not boyfriend material at all at 15, certainly not for them. They were looking for somebody more 20. You know what I mean? I think that's what we do to the old places when we quote go there. Mm. I think that's what we turn them into. Could you be, could you be, and a kind of two weeks later kind of disturbed grudge match with the gross limitations of the old place. Wow. Mm. Mm. Well, this question of consequence that we have on other places has surprisingly been received, even well-received by a lot of the listeners of the pod. And in fact, I've been having a conversation with one of our listeners who has stayed, basically, while everyone else has gone. And not to say moved, just to say traveled or toured. And so I invited her to write out a question for you in this regard. Oh. Okay. And so we have a question from one of our listeners. April is her name. So she's been following along for a while now and generally become rather undone by the realities of tourism in our time and in her place. And so April's a new mother. And among her friends, she tells me is the only one who is staying home while the kind of seasonal tourist boom sends people away from where she lives. Yeah. And so she preempts her question with a bit of reflection. She says, people spend their off time and vacations traveling rather than hunkering down in the places they live with the people they hardly see when they are working too hard to have the time to connect. And somehow that all seems normal these days. 
Like, why wouldn't you travel several times a year on every break from school or work and over every holiday instead of staying the heck at home? It appears that staying home is now viewed as strange or boring or entirely unfathomable. And so our question to you is this. What do we do with all of this awareness when we clearly do not live in a time where people care about staying in one place? Well, you know, the questions that that are the form of what do we do? What should we do? How do we and so on? All these questions are hypothetical in their formulation, but they don't have to be. Most of these things should probably be turned into observations instead of hypotheses. And you change one word, not how should we, how must we, how could we? It's how do we? Mm. How do we is reportage. That's happening. So how do we live the madness of the allegation that the only purpose that home serves is a place to leave? Catch a break from the ordinary. So because this is very current for me, what I'm about to say, I'm going to try to bend it in the direction of the question. So I'm working on a new book, God Help Us All. And and it's going to have some overlap with, I think, what you've been working on. And very recently, I started to think about these as directions, not so much on the compass, but as a kind of mythic, poetic charged proposition. I started thinking, first I started thinking about this one, the up and down one, the vertical one. And I thought about all of the positive associations that we have with that direction. And they're, I mean, they're almost without number. Things are looking up. Want to take you higher. Love has lifted us up where we belong. Mm -hmm. Just to take some lyrics that are handy. Oh, here's a good one. The root word for elder is old, old Germanic word, which gives us A-L-T, the root word of altitude. The one in great ascent. All of these things indicate a degree of departure. From where? You guessed it, right here. The other half of all that ascending language, all that aspiring language, is the language of the calamity of descent, the collapse into the subterranean, the wallowing, the catastrophes, literally, in that case. All of the downside of down. See? And yet, we're trained as kids to understand that that thing up there, like through the roof here, through your roof, that thing is so vast, that's what eternal is. It's just... Depth beyond depth beyond depth. And we have no experience of that depth. None whatsoever. We experience the sky, be it night sky or day. Even though we quote no better, but the actual experience of it is a flat plane. It has no fundamental depth for us at all. Ancestrally, where has all our depth in life come from? from the horizontal plane, from the one about width and breadth. That's where our sense of eternity comes from. That's where our sense of where God lives 
comes from. Not that. Over there, you could go. Should you? Good question. Good question. And that question animates your understanding of the fundament of what it means to be in the world with God. Doesn't mean everything goes, doesn't mean everything's great. Never did. But it certainly gave you an opportunity to work out what was God's and what was yours. And so mm. certain places, they had a certain kind of numinous quality that was best left to them. See, and that deepened your capacity to live as if these things were actually true. And you didn't have to go there to know them. And as we extinguished all of our understanding that the gods lived on the horizontal plane with us and all our sense of depth in place collapsed as we marauded and moved further and moved further and learned more and began to own all this stuff and all that sort of thing, it's no surprise that the gaze involuntarily tends to go up and down. Mm. Kind of desire to be delivered from the collapsing numinous quality of where we actually live. And all of these attributions take on this life of their own up there. So I've, of course, long since forgotten the question, but can you give me the gist of it again? And I'll tie the two of them together. How the people who decide to stay home might proceed in the wake of everyone else leaving or knowing that everyone else is uh, leaving, even on just on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think the tie-in that I'd make is this. The people who leave don't come back. You might see them on the street, but it's not clear they've re-arrived. It's not clear that after a break where they've literally recreated themselves, which is to say anybody can be anybody on a beach for 10 days, right? And your biography does not accompany you nor haunt you. Back home, where to a certain nominal degree, you are a known commodity, you live out your dissatisfactions. That's what your daily life becomes, a caravan of dissatisfactions, you know, meager kind of venal dissatisfactions, nothing spectacular about them. So I think that's what happens most of the time. That's what, I mean, the idea that you're going for a vacation so you can reacquire your zest for the grind <laughs> I don't think it works that way. You don't come back saying, yeah, let's get back to the office, man. I can hardly wait. Now I'm you know, ready to go. I'm all, I've seen the other side and I've what realized how lucky I am. Is that what happens with tourists from our part of the world venture forward? Do we come back with a renewed sense of our giddy good fortune at what our ancestors did to come here? I don't think so. that's not what I hear, I should say. I hear a deepening sense of dissatisfaction with the way it is and a collapsed understanding that you could actually make a go of it over there. It's a terrible combination. So, I, but I think the question is something along the lines of given all of that, man, what should <laughs> the stay at homes do 
with the waves of dissatisfaction that come in the form of people who have recreated themselves only to return to an unchanged circumstance. And maybe the answer could be this. Get to know a small piece of ground on the horizontal plane very well. Sure, you're going to have your feelings about it. Your feelings aren't the ground. The ground's the thing. The ground is not somewhere else. The ground is here. You're somewhere else. You want to be here? You got to learn. That's what staying home could be. So when we're talking earlier about hanging in here for the grim January to March long haul, you know, the long march of <laughs> being cold most of the time. This is not a curse. I mean, one of the beautiful things about it is you have to wear so many layers here. Like I got three on and I'm indoors and I got the fire going right over there. I still got three layers on. And if I venture out there, I need two more. What does it mean? Look at the opportunities I have for self-adornment. Mm. They're beyond describing. Mm. How are you going to do that with cutoffs and flip-flops? How are you going to do it? I say that partly jokingly, but partly not. I mean, I know that, and you know, that where you are, people self-adorn pretty well. But it's the people in between who look like me, but end up down there with the Irish tan. You know, trying to not look like this, being unable to look like that. Mm-hmm. That dissatisfaction never really departs from me. So being at home is a towering order in the 21st century, in the more materially blessed places in life. I mean, this is what we're doing with our so-called advantages. It's really should be very stilling. I wish it were. Mm. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Do we have time for one more question? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Or maybe a two or three fold question. Okay. (laughs) I'm not rushing outside anytime soon, so let's go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, it has to do with a certain scene in a certain book that uh, I know you and I have both read. And uh, this has a little bit to do with wondering about what I was doing there in Europe, in the UK, making these offerings to my dad and the places that the vast majority of them, there's no live connection, which is to say there's no there's no relative or relatives that are still living there minus minus one one village. And so in this particular scene, there is a living man speaking with a dead man somewhere in Europe, in rural Europe. And together they speak about the Nazis who escaped prosecution after the war and went to the Argentine, quote, living off the fat of the Pampas. In the scene, the living man laments the fugitivity, the lack of justice, and the dead man responds that, quote, justice will be done when the living know what the dead suffered. And the narrator tells us that the dead man, quote, said this without a trace of bitterness in his voice, as if he had all the patience in the world. Now, this this scene, these lines arrive in my eyes and my mind and my ears as a kind of quantum knot 
that evades most of my attempts to to an audit. And so I'm wondering if, you know, in the time that we have together, you'd be willing to kind of unpack and braille this moment between the, the living man and the dead man, essentially, you know, within the story, two men of the same village separated by war and migration and eventually reunited. And so there's a few things there. One is just generally what you think the narrator, the living man, the dead man were on about in regards to this notion that justice will be done when the living know what the dead suffered and why it might be important to know what the dead suffered or suffered, what that has to do with justice, what it might offer the living. I mean, for me, it's just, it's just so much there. And, yeah. and, and so I would love to listen anyways and to contend with how that arrives and kind of your end. Well, I didn't go to any of those as my first response while you were formulating the question and telling me the background from the novel. I went to the experience of time that informs the inflection about justice, about knowing, about living and dead. There's an understanding of time that the narrator cops to without acknowledging. Mm. The narrator, as best as I can understand it, uh, is talking about the future, the time when the living will know what the dead suffered. Justice is in the future. Hmm. That's the transaction of the narrator. It's not clear to me that it is what the dead man was saying. Because hmm. I'm not persuaded that the dead have a future. Mm. I'm not persuaded the living do either, but certainly not the dead. Right? If future is stuff that hasn't happened yet, it's very unclear if there is such a thing. I mean, the people who are doing the reincarnation work, you know, on the other side of the world, they would be very persuaded, I think, in the matter of future, that there's no such thing. If future means the novel. So we could imagine then that the living man and the dead man might sound like they're talking using the same words, but they're not saying the same thing. They're not inhabiting the same place. It's not clear, for example, that the living man could even understand what the dead man is saying. Mm. <clears throat> and the narrator may not be helping too much, but there's another person. That's the writer. And so I'm sitting here wondering, for example, so many writers, they take an idea and then go in search of characters that they can drape the ideas upon. So the idea can have some kind of momentum and, you know, a sense of storiedness that as an idea doesn't have. And usually these things are doomed because you can smell <laughs> that the idea is just swarming the characters or muffling them, or has been palliated by them. That's the literal meaning of to palliate. It means to cloak or shroud. Mm. So an idea-driven rendering in a novel is a terrible thing to do to paper and to do to your time. But I mean, it's not that uncommon, of course. If, on the other hand, we could countenance the real possibility that the narrator is floating this thing out 
in order to undo it in some fashion. That's a wondrous thing to contemplate. He's not saying, watch me do this. If it's a he, I'm not sure. But the author may be employing all of this to have some consequence about the nature of our understanding of time that insists that the dead are in the past. Mm-hmm. So let's credit the possible, the distinct maybe that he or she is mindful this way and has put this vast architecture of maybe into the water and pushed and then watched how the weather of the reading prevails upon it, yeah? Okay, so that's the overarching, my first response as I was listening to the you playing it out. And then I don't know that the living in my part of the world would sit still long enough for the dilemma that you've described to unfurl in their lives. Generally speaking, some real misfortune has to come around to make a question like this a question, a real something that's deserving of your attention, that should occupy your ordinary day. Justice, spoken about in the abstract as if it were a living thing unto itself, is a little, I'm not going to do it. I'll just put it that way. I don't think anything is served by trying to invest the notion of justice with a certain kind of momentum and animus and all the rest that is aside from its manifestations or its inability to manifest. I think that's where the nature of justice is to be found, in the struggles of articulation, not as some kind of, you know, Greek philosophy, pure ideal. For example, it's not clear at all that justice is everybody gets what they deserve. Because the presumption of the notion is that everybody started at the same starting point and the gun went off and you all had the same opportunity, so go. But clearly that's not true. So the absence of justice precedes the race, Mm. if you will, right? It's there first. The circumstances already grossly, oh, by unjust, you mean unequal. And now we're into a terrible conundrum of, does equal mean free? Is that what has to be there? That we all start in the same place? And and until we do, until we achieve that kind of baseline equality, justice is just a taunt and a torment? Or is it really possible that the transactions of justice require all this misshapen disequilibrium to to give us anything to do? Justice, it seems to me, to be work, first of all. It's work. It's the work of making a life in the teeth of the storm of the things you had no choice about. And so there's a kinship to me between justice and freedom, human freedom, that is. And uh, it seems to me human freedom is best understood as the circumstance remains the same, you change. 
you proceed otherwise. Even though there's nothing in the circumstance that whispers to you that there's merit in doing so. That's the work I'm talking about. The work of proceeding justly is a different order of undertaking than debating the nature of a just circumstance or society. That you have to translate this, whatever you cling to as in terms of justice, in the daily grind, in all the circumstances where you could proceed otherwise, which is why we have the word human, we have the other word humane. You could proceed otherwise as a human being, contrary to your humanity. Happens all the time. And if we do this amongst the living, and God knows we do, then how do we ever translate, transfer any of this educated take on things to our dealings with the dead? Do we have any in Anglo North America? Do we have any dealings with the dead? Aside from the odd weekend workshop, as you know, I was in the death trade for a long time. I never saw it come up. You'd think if there were ever a time for the dead to arise, if you will, dying would be such a time. I'm here to tell you, if it wasn't that way in your ordinary snarling, grinding, dissatisfied fitfully happy existence, it ain't going to be there at the end. You didn't do the work before now. You can't do the work now. Mm. And it stymies you. There's no muscle memory, frankly, of a moral or psychic nature to appeal to, right? So I would recast what was said there and imagine like this. Justice amongst the living includes the dead. Justice among the living that excludes the dead can't be just. So it's not entirely clear to me at all that knowing what the dead suffered is somehow the superhighway to justice. I appreciate the appeal. And wouldn't it be something? I'm not sure we could bear it, though. I should say that. I'm not sure that a lot of good would ensue. If anything, could it not ignite, I don't know, 40 or 50 Ukraines and Crimeas to knowing what suffering the dead endured? But we could hold up for this possibility nonetheless. That knowing the suffering of those who came before us could, far from igniting us, could actually still us. Keep us at home a while longer inside our own skin and try to see the monument of this injustice as a human scaled proposition. And no longer use language like justice and injustice, but see the suffering, find some kinship there. Understand, as I've said so often in the Nights of Grief and Mystery, right off the top, something like this. Oh my God, it's been so long since I said it. I think the gist of it is, so the dead, we are their latest, greatest chance to get it right. Mm -hmm. They, 
are our reason why. They are our holy ground. And we are theirs. It's not sameness. It's reciprocity. It's... Anyway, that's the beginning. Hmm. Hmm. I prefaced the question, the writing that I had put to it, with kind of understanding of travel, that any achieved travel would include or would be the basis for some kind of conciliatory, reconciliatory work in the world. And hearing you speak, I'm, you know, going beyond this question of must we travel, must we move, that, and also via these question of the axes, that that same travel, that that same conciliation and reconciliation could happen in a downward trajectory over time, using our days in our places, as you said, you know, to know a piece of land as a way of honoring that relationship, that reciprocity that you're mentioning, maybe. Well, God help us all. We don't have all the same work, you know. It's mm. important that when we begin to craft spandex solutions for things like this. Maybe if we just, it doesn't matter what you say after that. Mm. You're kind of, you got the Gore-Tex out, right? And one size fits all all of a sudden. Mm. So let's leave open the real possibility that there's different kinds of work to be undertaken, that you don't get to do them all, mm. that you have no obligation to be the Noam Chomsky of life. You know, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to occupy all the places. You don't have to put the hats on, take them off, another one, take it off, so on. Change your skin, you know. But just imagine that the bullshit luck of your birth may not be entirely happenstantial. That there may be something bordering on reason for the what, where, and the how, and the what of your presence among us. Your advent among us. That's the work. Translate that into what the troubles of your times might need from you. Understanding that the troubles of the times are where the employment of why you're here gets to be undertaken. I don't, I don't think that means that, quote, all of us stay home. Nor does it mean let's all head out <laughs> on the wings of desire for a couple of weeks. It doesn't mean that either. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Let's find out what it means. So if you're inclined to eschew the demand, the, the mundane demands of your ordinary life, maybe that's where God lives. And your disinclinations are what make you so lonely. And what people who live otherwise than the likes of you or I do with their allotment is not for me to weigh in on, really. You know, and I'm not even persuaded I should be generalizing from what I'm saying. But at the very least, I know Anglo-North America a little bit. You know, I've had the privilege of moving around in places that are not Anglo-North American. 
So I have a sense of what this looks like, how particular it is in its way. And I'm just willing to accede to the distinct possibility that I was born in this, I was going to say this muck. I was, I was born a mutt. There we go. And my mutt status has a certain strange lineage to it that I'm trying to live out by not being elsewhere, by trying to make room for it now, you know. And sometimes I do that by discovering what this isn't. But mostly I do that by discovering what this is. And that's why I say that the Orphan Wisdom School is really the unauthorized history of this thing called America. That's the Anglo-North American inflection that I'm describing here, right? So P.S., few, maybe a month ago or so, <laughs> I read in an unguarded moment. So if you have an unguarded moment, don't press send. <laughs> Just don't. But anyway, I did. So it turned into a newsletter. And as best as I remember, the first line went like this. I'm often asked whether it troubles me that quote, and I put quote marks there, people of color, and then I put bracket, not my term for it, bracket, don't typically come to things that I do. My answer is not at all. My hope for them is that they have their own, or they should, or if there's any justice or mercy, they do. And that there's no obligation that it comes upon me to instantly viably translate to anything that their lives let them in for. And for my trouble, I got some correspondents that accused me of being a segregationist. <laughs> so, hmm. so, so, I mean, I'm saying the same thing about staying here, going away. I don't know what everybody should do, man. There's too many everybody's to have any opinion about it. Mm. I'm stymied by that, you know. I don't know. And the older I get, the fewer opinions I have. If I last much longer, there'll be almost nothing to say of an opinion nature. And working in the death trade burned most of them out of me too. So all I'm left with is a kind of inclination to observe the state of affairs as best as I can figure it out. And go very easy on the globalizing instinct that would prescribe a solution to a problem that's not global. I mean, global is like human. There's no such thing as a, it's just these. They're just humans. There's no human, humanity. There's just humans. And there's no globe. There's just these little increments of the horizontal plane disturbed occasionally by the allegation of this kind of axis, of the vertical axis. I mean, there's a reason that the word vertigo comes from the word vertical. <laughs> there's a reason, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. You bet. 
Well, as usual, you leave me speechless. You know, I'll tell you a little brief vignette that mm, sends us on our way, because I have to go attend to the building of a barn just down the road here. So I, I got old enough to have a barn. So that's where we are. But uh, years ago, you know, I was thought I'd make my living as a stone carver. I may have told the story in Oxford. I can't remember if I was telling it then. But anyway, I was and, and making no serious headway at all. Soldered an old man who had done it for 60 years. And uh, well, I just asked him if I could come over. <laughs> and what I really wanted was a shortcut, you know, through the banality of learning so that I could just get to knowing, right? And some of the fringe benefits that inevitably would ensue from that, as I imagined. And his first response was to say, do you work every day? Now, I knew what the right answer was. I knew what the factually correct answer was. And I didn't have either one of them at my fingertips. So I treaded water and I said, I think about it every day. <laughs> every day. Oh, he said, you think about it. We well, say, you call me back when you do it every day. Click. Right. So that was my first in encounter with the real thing, stone carving wise. So then I thought to myself, okay, I'll show that son of a bitch. I'll work every day, but here's the dilemma, yours and mine. How many every days you have to put together before you're doing something every day? Mm. Right? Mm. It's kind of like, what's justice? It's, it's in the same realm of, oh my God, I don't know what the answer is. Mm. So I work two weeks every day. And then I figured... Well, I'm going to call again. I did. And I said, this is, and he said, I know who it is. I said, okay, well, anyway, it's only been two weeks, but I'm going to keep doing it too. But I'm hoping, you know, this is good enough for me to come over. He said, okay. He said, but we're going to strike a deal right now. And here's the deal. I'm going to tell you everything I know. And you're going to be disappointed because it's not going to take as long as you're counting on. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing I can say to dissuade you clearly. You made up your mind that you know this part of things. So I'll tell you everything I know. That's my end. Here's your end. You don't keep any of it to yourself. Because if you do, he said, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, I will find you. And I will haunt your ass to kingdom come, he said. Quote, that's what he said. Now, if you still want to come, he said, and he gave me his address. With that throwdown, right, between us, right? So, P.S., I did go to see him, which is to say I picked up the gauntlet. I'm wearing it still. And you calling me today is giving me the chance to keep that vow I made to that old man who's long dead now. Hmm. And would that all our lives give us a chance off and on to keep a vow we intemperately made when we were younger. So thanks yeah. for that. Yeah, thank you. May he be able to... Uh... To, to listen in on some of this and, and remember oh, yeah. what he put you to. <laughs> I think he recognized himself in one or two of the items. Mm -hmm. yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, boss. Thank you, too. Thank you for listening to the End of Tourism podcast. Wow. What an episode. If you appreciated the conversation, please leave a rating or review of the pod on the podcast platform that you're listening to. Likewise, you can subscribe on any podcast platform, join the conversation on social media via the handle The End of Tourism, or by supporting the pod 
via our Patreon account at patreon.com slash the end of tourism or via my substack at chrischristu.substack.com C-H-R-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U dot substack dot com. Through your donations in this gift economy, we ensure that the podcast persists advertisement and commercial free and without a paywall, ensuring that everyone can listen so that we don't have to resort to tiers or memberships. Lastly, a deep bow to Stephen Jenkinson and Natalie Roy for their continued support and friendship. Until next time, farewell, friends.